This episode was produced and recorded before the WHO announced a new variant of concern named Omicron on the 24th of November. And while the situation is unfolding as we speak, commentary in this episode still remains relevant to the current state of play of the pandemic. As we head into 2022, we're faced with the reality of living in a new normal, one that lets us live largely out of lockdown, going to work, parties and traveling under cautious protocols, but we'll still likely have that aura of uncertainty around us. Will my vaccine stop working? Could I be a threat to my loved ones? Or will the borders spontaneously shut if I go for a visit? Now, there are so many factors that will speak to when and if we get out of this pandemic. But pivotal goals that the world will be working towards in parallel are developing and authorizing newer and more effective vaccines, along with getting all corners of the globe vaccinated. The WHO has a goal of getting 40% of every country vaccinated by the end of this year to see how the world can really proceed. But right now, that's looking tough. So in this episode, we'll take a look at the future pipeline of vaccines that might be more appealing for the vaccine-hesitant, children, boosters, and for newer variants, and we'll also look at how the world is tracking towards that safe house that is a livable endemic. So let's dive in. I'm Sarani Fernando, and you're listening to The Vaxxed Files. This is episode 16, The Future Pipeline and Global Outlook. So at the beginning of the year, a number of vaccines were authorized and globally distributed. A couple of mRNA vaccines, four adenoviral vector vaccines, and three inactivated viral vaccines. The pipeline of other vaccines was full, and we thought we'd have a few more big authorizations by now, but things seem to have slowed down with just a few local vaccine authorizations trickling through. There were some clinical trial failures, some regulatory setbacks, and also manufacturing challenges that put us in a place of watching and waiting. But let's also not forget that the first vaccines had huge amounts of government funding behind them that allowed them to accelerate, which a lot of the next generation vaccines simply don't have. Now, the next biggest hope we had were the protein-based vaccines. Earlier this year, we discussed this platform. And if you remember, this mechanism is the basis for a lot of approved and established vaccines like the pneumococcal vaccines, meningococcal and hepatitis B vaccines. And these are based on actually taking a protein particle of the virus, which is then characterized, purified and often combined with an adjuvant to boost an immune response. Now, if you need a refresher on this, you can always dial back to episode five but we discussed that these vaccines take a little bit longer to develop than mRNA vaccines. They're a bit more intricate and complicated to manufacture, but they also have very robust data in regards to efficacy, immune protection, durability, and safety once they pass all the clinical trial tests. Now, there are a few protein-based vaccines that have received emergency use authorization in select countries, for example, China, Iran, Turkmenistan, and Cuba. And a good resource is the New York Times COVID vaccine tracker. 
The most talked about protein-based vaccine has been from Novavax, and after producing positive top-line data showing around 90% overall efficacy, it looked like an authorization would happen pretty quickly mid this year. But they had some manufacturing hiccups which delayed authorizations. However, in early November, it got its first authorization in Indonesia, followed by another authorization in the Philippines, with other authorizations around the world expected to follow. So the Novavax technology is very interesting. That's Dr. Maria Batazzi again from the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, who's also an experienced protein-based vaccine developer. It does combine certainly the concept of subunit vaccines using, of course, protein-based, but they really paired it with innovation too by using an interesting viral-type particle to actually put together this protein and eventually with a novel adjuvant, which they call their matrix M, right? So it's a proprietary also formulation. And indeed, at least from the data we have been seeing from the South Africa trial and, you know, some of the information we've been hearing from their press releases, it's very promising, even at the same level as, you know, the RNA technology. Novavax is really the spike protein itself, as opposed to using genetic material for you to code for the spike protein in your body. It's the spike protein itself with an adjuvant. That was Dr. Monica Gandhi again from the University of San Francisco, who we heard from last episode. The reason this is incredibly important vaccine, I think, is it's it's more traditional and doesn't use genetic material. And there's still been kind of misinformation and concern about the genetic material vaccine. So I think Novavax would give some people comfort. That's one reason to have it. Second is if we boost with something that has a different part of the spike protein, you're ending up getting more antigens, more pieces of the virus that you see to raise a more in-breath immune response. She also said that Novavax's vaccine will also be a very attractive option for children, given the safety concerns around both the mRNA vaccines and adenoviral vector vaccines. It's like our diphtheria, our pertussis, tetanus. This is a very standard vaccine. It's taking the protein, sticking it with an adjuvant and giving it really safe, really something that everyone's used to. I could see that being very attractive for children in the future. And so luckily, Novavax is actually applying everywhere for authorization. Regulatory filings in the UK, EU and Canada are all underway and Novavax plans to complete its US filing to the FDA by the end of the year. But given the attraction, the question is why all of the delays and what's to say there won't be more? The biggest challenge for protein subunit vaccines in general. That's investigative journalist Raynal Castaneda, who we heard from earlier this year. He's the clinical trials editor at Global Data Media and he's been following and reporting on the future pipeline of COVID vaccines closely. From the reporting that I've done with protein subunit vaccines, it's not really so much about efficacy data or safety data. Of course, those two things are important. What's key for them is to sort of really demonstrate how capable they are in manufacturing their vaccines. Novavax is a fairly small company, so it's more likely to sort of outsource its manufacturing needs. That's why it's working with Serum Institute of India, which is quite a big company with regards to manufacturing. It appears that there've been quality issues and manufacturing issues that occurred as they were ramping up their production. That's Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky again from Flinders University in Australia, who we heard from in earlier episodes. So there were issues with the quality of the material that was being produced and the fact that, as I understand it, 
it didn't match the same quality of the original material that was used in the clinical trials. And if, if you can't match that up, then you can't guarantee it will work the same way. Now, we did discuss this in our earlier manufacturing episode, where the scale-up from a clinical trial batch to a batch big enough to commercialise can often be where things go wrong for traditional vaccines. So this isn't exactly a surprise. They've had significant issues they have to overcome in terms of you know, improving the quality of that large-scale manufacturing and showing that it actually is similar enough to the original material that it should be able to be approved. Now, a protein-based vaccine that received authorization in October was actually the vaccine that has come out of Dr. Petrovsky's research group in Australia. It's being developed by Small Australian Biotech Vaccine, which is partnered with Iranian biotech Synergen. It's actually completed its phase three trial, showed high levels of protection against infection with the, the Delta strain. And on the back of that, it was actually given a market authorization on, under a, you know, emergency use approval in Iran. With vaccine, they've announced that their data is above 60% effective against symptomatic disease, but we're still also waiting for some nuanced detail on the ratio of infection rates between the placebo and the vaccine arm as well. According to Ray's reporting, the trial efficacy exceeded the 60% benchmark for authorization in Iran, but we don't know the exact efficacy figure as the manuscript is being finalized. So while we can't make too many judgments, any vaccine showing over 60% efficacy is meaningful, given the official benchmark for the FDA, EMA and WHO is 50%, but what's more important is efficacy amidst the Delta outbreak, which the current vaccines fall short on. We'll be focusing on, on overseas countries for rolling out our vaccine because there is no Australian market. It's, it's you know, the government have uh, already pre-purchased from Novavax and Pfizer and, and Moderna more than enough vaccine for the whole of Australia. So it can't justify the costs actually of applying to the TGA for an approval given that there actually isn't a market here. So since our conversation, it turns out many Australians actually want this vaccine as a crowdfunding campaign was started up to a million dollars to help fund this vaccine through the Australian regulatory approval process. So who knows, this vaccine might be made available to Australians soon and likely other developing countries. Now, other protein-based vaccines in phase three trials include one from Chinese company Clover, which is partnered with US company Dynavax. The interesting thing about that is they reported positive phase three trial data just last month, but we're still waiting for the full manuscript of the data from that company. They're expecting to submit for regulatory filing sometime before the end of the year. It's still unclear how, how good its manufacturing is still, but the thing with Clover is that it is working with Dynavax, which has its own adjuvant manufacturing capabilities. And it, that adjuvant is actually already in pre-existing vaccine. So it doesn't have to start from scratch with regards to manufacturing muscle in that regard, at least. So next we have multinational players GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi with their protein-based vaccines. Now, if you remember, they had some efficacy issues late last year, which set them back on time. After some reformulation and a successful phase two, they entered a phase three trial in May and should have results out next year. 
what's interesting about them is that while they're kind of a bit behind the race with other protein subunit vaccines, they're vaccine manufacturing giants. So if they end up securing any authorization anywhere, they could potentially put an adrenaline shot to their manufacturing capabilities. Positive results will likely see faster action for these multinational giants in terms of regulatory authorization and distribution, which we know is much more difficult for smaller companies or research groups. There's also a protein-based vaccine in phase three trials in India for both adults and kids, and this technology actually is coming from Mario Bottazzi's group at the Baylor College of Medicine in Texas and partnered with Indian company Biological E. Now, the company said it might seek emergency use authorization in India later this year once it looks at interim efficacy data. The other one that I'm quite excited to find out more about is the one by Medicago, which is currently in phase two, three trial. And according to the company, they're looking to report sometime before the end of the year. What's different about this approach is that they're using a virus-like particle that expresses the COVID antigen. So this hasn't been done before. So this could probably be something that would attract people who might be a bit more hesitant with the adenovirus vector vaccines, for example. Another important factor to consider is that the next generation vaccines that had their clinical trials carried out in 2021 had a higher bar to reach in terms of efficacy. So because these trials ran while Delta is circulating, their data is actually more relevant in present time compared to the vaccines that were run in the earlier part of the pandemic. So with these trials that are being run now and with data just reporting now, they could clearly say that their vaccine is X percent protective against Delta. And we know that Delta is perhaps the most virulent variant out there at the moment. So the assumption is that if you have really good data against Delta, it could potentially even be more protective with less virulent variants. But still, all the protein-based vaccines have been designed to code for the original spike protein of the Wuhan variant. And we hope that they'll still be somewhat protective against future variants, but that's not guaranteed. So now the next step is to think about redesigning the vaccine against multiple variants, which, as we discussed last episode, is more feasible with the protein-based vaccine approach. We can eventually lead to having maybe a universal coronavirus type of vaccine that could use a single vaccine, but Albeit is not going to be 100% for all the variants, but it will provide enough protection against severe disease, against hospitalizations, and of course, people dying, right? You know, the difficulty is what do you design it against? I think that's also the, the reason why there's a lot of calls now to advance that kind of research and development. Dr. Batazzi said that she was working with her team very early on in the pandemic, but it was really the hype around the mRNA vaccines that really overshadowed a lot of the traditional vaccine development approaches, which took a lot more time to gain traction. But now it's a different story. Now it's most likely those will be the safest. There's already an infrastructure of producers. And maybe they're also a little bit more acceptable to people, right? I mean, I would probably not hesitate if I say, oh, I'm going to get a vaccine similar to the ones that I got when I was a little kid, right? I think that 
right now it's our time, you know, the, the protein-based vaccines may come and help, may also be a good boosters, may also be the long-term solution if we end up needing to have a vaccine that needs to be continuously produced for many, many years. You know, if we look at the example of the hepatitis B vaccine, you know, which we give newborn babies, initially it was thought that that would need to have a booster every 10 years. But now we're, we're sort of 40, 50 years in and we recognise it gives close to lifelong immunity. And that's obviously was the very first recombinant protein vaccine that was rolled out in the 80s. So I think there is the possibility that protein-based vaccines will induce better memory than some of these other newer platforms, which we don't fully understand entirely how, for instance, mRNA works yet. So, and nor do we have any human data earlier than last year to indicate whether or not it gives long-term immunity. Obviously it gives some of the best short-term immunity, but that may not translate into the long-term. You know, we fully expect protein-based approaches, or at least some of them, to become available as we go into the end of the year and early next year. So I think for those people who want protein-based vaccines, I think they should be able to have them. And, you know, certainly on the safety side, we have not seen any of these side effects we're talking about with our vaccine, whether it's the myocarditis or the central venous thrombosis. But obviously, you simply don't know until you've given it to millions of people. Protein-based approaches have been used over so many decades that we wouldn't expect something like that to happen. But you always have to monitor for that. So while the protein-based vaccines seem to be the most advanced in the pipeline, there are a bunch of other vaccines that people are looking out for. In episode 5, we also spoke about DNA vaccines, which is a special futuristic approach that involves DNA being delivered into the cell nucleus, and in order to get there, the vaccine is delivered through special devices that penetrate the epidermis of the skin, a place that is rich in immune cells and therefore more effective than the intramuscular muscular injection. The pros of this approach is that DNA is much more stable than RNA, and this vaccine might be less reactogenic than mRNA vaccines. But the cons of these vaccines are that it needs a special delivery device, either electric pulses or a gene gun, which comes with another set of regulatory hurdles. We talked about a company called Inovio, who was at the forefront of the DNA vaccine race with its vaccine delivered via electroporation. But after a few setbacks around its device, they only started a phase three trial in August. The surprise first authorization for a DNA vaccine in the world came from an Indian company called Zydus Catala that showed that its DNA vaccine was around 67% protective against symptomatic disease. I spoke to Dr. Deborah Fuller again from Washington University, who is one of the leaders in DNA vaccine technology development. I asked her about her take on the vaccine coming out of India and its results compared to other vaccines. I think 67% protection from symptomatic disease is, is really good, actually. She said that while Pfizer and Moderna hit those impressive 95% efficacy results late last year, those numbers no longer really hold up around Delta. So Zydus Cadillac hitting 67% efficacy during the Delta outbreak is pretty decent. You can extrapolate that further to say, 
Well, I didn't see the numbers, but my guess is that the percent efficacy and protection from severe disease and hospitalization is, is going to be quite high. And that's really what we what we mostly care about. Ray and I spoke about the hurdles that DNA companies have to get their devices authorized and subsequent delays as a result. So I asked Dr. Fuller how the Zytus Cadillac vaccine was able to get through so fast versus the other players. So for their particular type of vaccine, what they ended up using was something is, is called like a biojector. Basically, it's like a blunt needle that pushes liquid into the skin. That particular technology is brute force of shoving liquid DNA into the extracellular spaces of the skin and then having passive uptake of that DNA and hoping some of that gets into the nucleus. Our technology actually uses microparticles as little mini bullets that actually directly inject the DNA into the cells of the skin. And so we already get it into the cell and then we have a more efficient delivery of that DNA into the nucleus. So we get a lot more of the DNA being expressed in the skin with our technology than what the biojector sort of apparatus that they use. And it also is is, uh, is less painful. It's just like a feels like a puff of air, whereas, you know, that, you know, with a little bit of a liquid injection, it's, it's somewhat painful, not as painful as a needle stick, but it's still somewhat painful. We still have a little bit to go because we have that device in addition to the biologic, the vaccine material to get into through the FDA approvals. Now, some experts aren't as convinced about the DNA vaccine pipeline like Dr. Shabi Ahmadi from the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. It's method of administration. I think it comes with a fair amount of complexity and it hasn't been shown to perform too much better than RNA vaccine. And compared to the administration that's required for a DNA vaccine, the RNA vaccine is probably easier to administer. And I think the RNA vaccines overcome some of the issues in terms of storage, which makes it more sort of friendly to use and to deploy. So again, I can't see why the DNA vaccines would be too much of a game changer relative to what the RNA vaccines are able to offer. There are also other types of mRNA vaccines with potential attractive differentiators. Another one that I'm quite intrigued by is the mRNA vaccine by Arcutus Therapeutics. As we've learned this year, we all assume that mRNA vaccines is sort of like it's all going to work. But, you know, with CureVac reporting really poor data, it's sort of it could go either way. Arcturus is a California-based biotech that's partnered with Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore. They have an mRNA vaccine that's in a combined phase 2-3 trial, and interesting animal testing has shown protection against infection. The other promising development is new types of mRNA vaccines. That was Dr. Prashant Yadav, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and Professor at INSEAD. We heard from him earlier this year during the manufacturing episodes. One in particular that a company called Genova is developing. This mRNA vaccine is in a combined phase 1-2 trial led by Indian company Genova and Seattle-based company HTD Bio. The benefits are that if you don't rely on the same lipid nanoparticle encapsulation technology, but to think about the delivery method to be slightly different, then some of the complex manufacturing challenges around the lipid nanoparticle encapsulation portion of the process steps become easier, which may lend themselves to a larger number of companies and sites being able to manufacture. And the second is their vaccine candidate 
does not require stringent ultra cold chain type of temperatures. So that looks like a promising candidate. Last episode, Dr. Marty mentioned that to adapt our vaccines to the newer variants and to help us better protect against infection and transmission, vaccine developers might have more success with targeting both the spike protein and the nuclear capsid protein of the virus, and the mRNA vaccines seemed to be more easily adaptable for this approach. There's some animal model data which suggests that the combination of the SNA and proteins are much more efficient in terms of getting sterilizing immunity because they've got a much more robust cell-mediated immune response than just the S-protein-based vaccines. Now, there are a few vaccines using this approach in the pipeline, but the two most advanced are both in phase two trials. One is from the City of Hope Research Institute of California, and the other is from Bavarian Nordic in Europe. But again, I, I would still be skeptical in believing that even that sort of a strategy would get us to a herd immunity threshold or come anywhere close to be able to eliminate the virus. So there are hundreds of vaccines being developed in the pipeline and we don't have time to go through all of them. But Ray and I were specifically talking about the intrigue around needle-free approaches, for example, intranasal sprays or oral vaccines that might be attractive options, not because they don't use that painful needle, but because they directly target the primary site of infection, the nose or the mouth, and also eliminate the need for syringes and needles, which often add an extra layer of complexity when it comes to administration and also distribution. But there are still some caveats with these approaches that may come in the way of some of them succeeding. With the intranasal approach, one of the more amusing things that an investigator told me was during the trials, when the vaccine recipient would sneeze, they would be unsure if the recipient actually got the complete dose of the vaccine. The other one would be with the oral approach. The biggest challenge is for the oral vaccine to survive that corrosive environment of the stomach, because unless the vaccine survives the stomach, it's unlikely to go through to the small intestine where all the action actually happens. And overall, the biggest challenge for all these approaches is that at the very least, they're phase one or phase two ready. So they're very, very early in the race. And even if they do get approved in the end, they have unique manufacturing requirements. Given these are unique approaches, they'll also need specialized manufacturing facilities, which just adds an extra layer of complexity to getting them to the public. Now, this is actually something that the industry as a whole will have to be on top of in terms of making sure there is enough manufacturing capacity for all the different types of vaccines to meet the demands of the vaccines the world wants to produce and purchase. If the future trajectory of the virus is such that we have to think about periodic vaccination, then it's also going to become a question of how does the market share get allocated between different manufacturers of different types of vaccines? And the market share allocation, I mean, this is a problem that we all study quite quite a lot in biopharmaceuticals and, and the life sciences industry. It'll depend upon demand size preferences. It'll depend upon payment and reimbursement structure. It'll depend upon the population perceptions of which one do they consider to be a more efficacious vaccine. And it'll depend upon country governments 
national policies on which ones they want to include for their uh, subsidized national vaccination programs. So this goes back to what we've discussed before. Manufacturers will have to be a bit more agile with cooperation and collaboration in order to effectively tackle future global vaccine needs. There's just no room for siloed approaches. So I think a variety of factors are going to come into play to determine what the future shape and size of the COVID vaccines market market looks like. And the trajectory of the virus is only one part in that uncertainty equation. There are many other parts which are human-created uncertainty that sometimes are the bigger source of uncertainty than the pandemic's trajectory itself. So when we talk about the future pipeline of vaccines, there's also a question of ramping up manufacturing capacity for the existing vaccines in different parts of the world, especially lower-income countries, considering they're the ones struggling to get shipments as higher-income countries keep the doses for themselves. I asked Prashant if there was any progress here. So a lot of new vaccine manufacturing sites have come up in the last 12 months period and much of that in the last five, six months. He mentioned three sites in Africa, additional sites in Latin America and a few homegrown manufacturers in India. When I say they have come up, they are not at a stage where they are currently producing commercial batches of COVID vaccines that can go into the population, but they are getting ready to do that. And they are getting ready to do that with a sufficient diversity of platforms. Prashant said that as they're getting ready to start developing COVID vaccines, they're also strategizing on what to do with these facilities in the medium to long term if the demand for COVID vaccines starts to decrease. There's the possibility of setting them up to manufacture other routine childhood or adult vaccines, or even getting them prepared for new pathogenic vaccines that might be needed for future outbreaks. But in any case, this is significant progress, which should put these regions on slightly better footing should another outbreak break occur, making them less reliant on higher income countries to save them. Because even though rich Western countries have been pledging doses to lower income countries, somehow they're still at the bottom of the queue. If a country overall is a smaller market, then they don't have that kind of leverage, not just for COVID vaccines, but for the overall pharmaceutical market. The WHO's goal of getting 40% of all countries vaccinated by the end of 2021 is now getting tight and unfortunately looking unlikely. And Dr. Sam Agudu from Maryland University and the Institute of Virology in Nigeria said that the COVAX facility, while a good initiative in theory, didn't pan out as planned in terms of helping to reach that goal. What we expected to happen is not happening. Maybe more disbursements coming in with higher numbers, but it's still trickling. There are vaccine trickles, there's vaccine drips, you know, and there'll be, you know, 150,000, maybe some are more substantial, three point something million doses. But that still does not even get us to 20% of some of these countries. The whole inaction is as if it's buying time for high income countries to do exactly what they want to do, get everybody all tanked up with three doses, including booster and so on, vaccinate all the children, do everything, and then leave the rest of the world to languish. I asked her whether things had improved after more pressure was put on national leaders, for example, the US, EU, the UK and the like. So the advocacy is continuing. And and what we are hearing is leaders in the high income countries who are very much the ones who have hoarded these vaccines, very much the ones who have refused to 
vote to have the intellectual property transferred so that some low and middle income countries can make these vaccines are the same ones who would respond to these things and say yes you know low and middle income countries including some who are in africa you know have not received vaccines and you know still smile and respond but very much inactive and i don't think this is due to processes and procedures these things can be done and can be done very quickly you protect your population but then the world's population is also protected because guess what the borders are just artificial borders if we are not all one big herd that's immune it's still going to be a problem Unfortunately, in the absence of really being able to quantify what the burden of COVID-19 has been on a continent, that sort of diminishes the ability to advocate for vaccines to be made available to the continent as well as within a country for people to get vaccinated. And that, for me, is one of the challenges we currently face. I think for many African countries, inadvertently, they're going to end up developing protection against severe disease, not because of immunity induced by vaccines, but rather because of the high force of natural infection that's taken place over the course of the past three waves. He said that even in South Africa, which has around 20% of its population vaccinated, the country is still expecting another COVID resurgence around December, January. But it's likely that this fourth wave will be modest compared to what was experienced during the first three. All the models currently indicate that in South Africa, over the course of the first three waves, as many as 70 to 80 percent of people have been naturally infected with the virus. And that does induce good protection, at least against severe disease, even if not too predictable when it comes to how well it protects against reinfection and mild illness. He said that there's some data coming out of Ethiopia and other CIRA surveys, all of which speak to more than 50 to 60 percent of African populations being infected with the virus. So even though Africa is lagging behind when it comes to vaccine-induced immunity, I think it's probably inadvertently in a similar space as high-income countries when it comes to a protection against severe disease in the context of immunity having transpired inadvertently through natural infection. So I interviewed all of my experts before the news of the new variant of concern named Omicron was identified and announced on the 24th of November. Now, scientists are still gathering more information on this new variant that came out of Africa, something that all of my experts feared might happen with the lack of immunity in that region. But as of now, it's not clear if Omicron will supplant Delta or completely evade vaccine-induced immunity, and we'll just have to watch and wait for further scientific analysis. But in any case, where we stand right now, we're still not at the end of the pandemic tunnel, but to some extent, there are some better forecasts on where we need to be to get to that livable endemic. To some extent, depends on what your target is. For me, if our target is really to bring COVID down to be no worse than seasonal influenza, which causes anything between 280,000 and 600,000 people to die, if we are targeting that sort of numbers, I do think that we could be in that space in a period of six to nine months from now. That's underpinning assumption there is that we do accept that COVID-19 is here to stay, that it is going to become endemic, and it also speaks to what we would be comfortable with when it comes to potential number of people still dying of COVID-19. A typical pandemic, you know, it, it, it runs for three to four years is when it has its disruptive effect before it, it sort of settles into the background. So 
you know, I think people were just hoping that this would be very, you know, transient. But, you know, I think we might have another year to go, but I think the light is at the end of the tunnel and I think things will start to improve next year and hopefully by the end of next year, we will be getting back to more of a semblance of normal. So it's hard, but we are getting there. So that's it for the Vax Files in 2021. I hope these episodes have been helpful. It's clear that there's still a lot to learn about the situation we're in and the future role vaccines will play when it comes to escaping this pandemic. It's also clear that the virus is here to stay, but in what capacity still remains unclear and will depend a lot on how the global community decides to tackle this together as a herd. Thanks to my guests, Raynal Castaneda, Dr. Maria Batazzi, Dr. Monica Gandhi, Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky, Dr. Shabir Mahdi, Dr. Prashant Yadav, and Dr. Sam Argudu for coming onto this episode. Thanks also to Adam Townsell and everyone at Resonate Recordings for all the music and editing of these episodes. Finally, thanks to all of you for coming with me on this journey. Please make sure to share it if you found it helpful and review us on Apple Podcasts. But for now, I'm Sir Ronnie Fernando, and that's all for the Vax Files. <laughs>